Who are they? How did they get here, and where are they now? I'm Tyson Chastain, Director of Alumni Relations with Johnson University, and this is the Sojournal Podcast. The Sojournal Podcast is a production of the Alumni Relations Office at Johnson University and is brought to you by the Alumni Association. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. Today we're joined in the Sojourner Podcast by Dr. Bob McGurdy, a 2022 newly minted PhD graduate. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here with you. I guess I should have said Dr. Bob, but uh, Dr. Bob <laughs> McGurdy, thank you so much. Um, if you don't mind, would you give a general introduction of yourself to those in our audience who do not know Bob McGurdy? Sure. As you said, my name is Bob McGurdy, and uh, I have had a career in missions serving in Bangladesh and India for over 30 years. Currently, I'm the president and chairman of an organization called Calcutta Mercy, whose mission is to feed, educate, and medically assist in India. My wife and I have been married almost 40 years, and I have two sons, Bobby and Josiah. Bobby passed away about five years ago at 32 years old, and our son Josiah is an IT guy who lives close by where we're at and right outside of Springfield, Missouri. Mm, I'm sorry to hear about your son. Uh, I think in our discussion today, maybe we'll get into a little bit of that and talk about some of the lessons, but... Uh, to get started, would you mind um, telling me about your journey to faith? How did you discover Christ? Sure. Uh, U.S. Air Force, I joined. I really had this idea that I wanted to go to medical school, become a doctor, and the money wasn't there. And so, uh, meanwhile, there was an Air Force recruiter who came through the high school and uh, and he convinced me, joined the Air Force, and it was there that I was invited to a church, a lively church, and uh, was overwhelmed by God's presence, didn't understand what was happening, and literally went home to my uh, dorm room at the Air Force Base and wrote a letter to God. And I know that sounds silly, but I didn't have a prayer life or a real understanding of God, so I wrote my feelings down and kept going, and then I made a decision to follow Jesus. Mm. So uh, where were you raised? New Jersey. Jersey. Um, yeah. I, I've tried to hide my accent. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe the listeners will will say they heard some Jersey in there. <laughs> I haven't heard any Jersey yet, but, you know, it, you sort of get some of that hints of, uh, of India. And you said Bangladesh? So uh, 15 years in Bangladesh, and then we were on a stateside assignment for about five years, uh, basically sending medical teams around the world. And then the call came to serve as a leader of our organization for all of our work in India and uh, loved that. And, and um, after 30 years, I transitioned to a, basically a, a sister organization that I was already working with within the denomination. But and, and their goal, like I said, is to feed, educate, medically assist in India. We have a hospital and a feeding program and schools. Mm, good, good. Well, before we get into kind of the details of the ministry and your experience there, tell me about that faith formation then for you. You were in the Air Force. You gave your life to Christ kind of 
whatever that was. Mm-hmm. So uh, I get the impression then you were not raised in a Christian home, did not have the Christian context until Air Force. Yeah. So funny story, six years old, a uh, Catholic priest knocks on the door and says, is this home Catholic or Protestant? And uh, mom said Protestant, dad said Catholic. His voice was louder. And so then I was... Uh, a week later, baptized a Catholic. But it didn't mean I went to church. It didn't mean I was connected to the church. And that was pretty much uh, my understanding of religion was distant. And, and, you know, Christmas and Easter, I might visit a church, but but there was no active. It, it was an external. It was a formality. And so probably if you asked me then if I was a Christian, my answer would be yes, but I couldn't give a definition of what that was. It meant every now and again I might show up over there, (laughs) but it wasn't a personal faith. I Uh think that would be a fair way to describe it. Okay, so what actually happened in the Air Force that got you to write that letter? It's it's a great story. I'm glad you asked. So I was uh, studying to be a lab technician, and I had taken ill for about three days where I had to check into the hospital. And, you know, in the Air Force, you're either in the hospital or you're at work. And mm. so I probably wasn't sick enough to need to be in the hospital, but I was too sick to be in class. So what happened in the Air Force, you, you, you learn in cycles. So every three weeks, there's a new batch for, for the training. And because I missed three days of class, I was going to have to do the entire microbiology again. And I apologize to any microbiologists that may listen, but microbiology is boring. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I was trying to make a deal with my, uh, my microbiology instructor to not, I was going to offer to wash Petri dishes, to help him with anything. And um, just before that, he had given an invitation to come to church. It was a non-denominational church. And so I'm in line, there was one or two people before me, to work out a deal so that I didn't have to take another three weeks of microbiology. And he thought I was in line to attend church because he made a statement of, hey, there's a special program if anybody would like to go. So he looked at me and he said, said, so you're interested in church? And he was all excited. And I felt bad for him. And so I said, yeah, I'll go to church. But I did not intend to go to church. I, I did it to... Uh, appease him and to work on my deal and I could tell his his heart was kind of dropped and and uh, and I said I would go to church but I think he knew I didn't mean it I didn't go to church but by Monday it was conviction I didn't understand what conviction was but but I I like I, I I felt this like you know if you ate one slice of pizza too much you did you just feel sick and and you and you can identify and and I was feeling sick and I could almost hear myself saying, I'll go to church. And I thought, this is really weird. I didn't understand it, but somehow I was feeling bad, and I knew it was tied to telling him I'd go to church. So I said, well, I, I've got to deal with this. So that uh, Monday, day after I had, should have been in church, I said, Sergeant Johnson, I, I want to apologize to you. I, I, I told you I'd go to church. And and he made some comment that just really threw me off. I, I think he said, oh, that's okay. We're having a healing service tonight. And I thought, oh, man, this guy's crazier than I thought he was. And, and I can remember saying, I'm not going to healing uh, service, but I'll be in church on Sunday. And literally, when I said Sunday, 
I didn't feel sick anymore. And, and, and I was scared. I thought, does he have some, I just didn't know, but I, I could say I was scared to go to church. I mean, I was scared to not go to church that next mm. Sunday. So all week I was like waiting for Sunday to come. So anyhow, I, I'm there, the appointed time, there was a bus that would come. And you think of bus ministry, this is Air Force, you, you think that the bus would have the name of the church or whatever, but if you can imagine a yellow school bus painted by volunteers who weren't very good volunteers, white, <laughs> and the only thing the yellow school bus painted white said on it, it didn't have the name of the church, it said born again. So I got on the born again bus. <laughs> I know it's crazy. And I sat all the way in the back and all the Air Force guys, so it was an off base uh, church, but all the Air Force guys would sit in the front three rows. It was reserved. So these Air Force guys would come up to me and they want to hug me and I'm from New Jersey. Don't hug me. <laughs> so I'm, they're like, "Hey, I'm so and so," and I'm and I'm like putting my hand out, saying, "Okay, go on." And and they said, "Would you like to sit up front with us?" And I said, "I'm good back here because I, I wanted to be close to the exit." <laughs> and that was the moment there was an invitation for faith, and didn't know it, didn't understand it, and I'm 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 not going to do something just because everyone does it or just because I have this feeling in me, and that's why I went home was processing and wrote a letter to God. And I just, I don't know who you are. I don't know how to pray. And I, I don't know exactly. And I don't have that letter today. I don't know where it is, but I put my feelings out there and I encountered God and I didn't understand it. And then it was a week later that I made that faith decision. Wow. It's just, it's wild to hear just the different contexts in which God can work to bring somebody to acknowledge or to pursue or what have you. So then how did your faith grow from that point? What what were the steps in the journey? Because you obviously became involved in Christian-related ministry internationally, so there's sure. got to be something sure. in that growth. Yeah, it was a radical. It was, it was a 180 for me. I mean, my whole outlook of life, there were just amazing things. I, I couldn't wait to go to church. And, and the church I went to was quite interesting because... They were really engaged, and again, they had this Air Force Fellowship where, where they just understood these are new guys who've left home, and, and they were just involved in our lives. And I remember a Sunday I didn't go to church, and somebody called me, hey, we miss you. And I said, well, you know, I had to study, and, and, and they said, okay, will you be there next Sunday? And I said, no, I've got... They said, we'll come and study with you. And like, literally, they came and helped me. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to church. But it was very <laughs> engaged. But, but I was serious to the point, like a year and a half, two years later, I met who was to be my wife. And we had started dating. And, and I remember telling her something like, um, you know, if we're going to have this strong relationship I'm God's, and I, I may be in the, I, I belong to God, and I'm, it may be the jungles of Africa, but if, if God says go somewhere, I'm going to go, and uh, I just jumped to, to a, another point of that. I remember being in Bangladesh, and we were having some real difficult times, and my wife said, I think the jungles of Africa might have been better. <laughs> <laughs> She'd remembered that conversation earlier, but, but I just, um, I was hungry, I, I was just soaking in God's word. And, and it was about two years later that I just, I knew that God had his call on my life. And 
I didn't understand what it was, but I knew it didn't matter what it was because I was called and, mm. and I was going to be faithful to that. God made it clear that that call was Bangladesh and we just uh, loved it. And, you know, it's, it's just a beautiful place to be in God's presence. So what did you do for 30 years in Bangladesh? So we, we lived in Bangladesh for 15 years. Oh, and, 15, okay. Uh, and 30 years in missions, but 15 years in Bangladesh and um, typical missions, you, you do whatever's needed at the moment. The, my favorite activity, what I did that I loved the most, was teaching in the Bible school. Um, initially, I, you know, started with the kind of earlier level courses and built up and, and I taught in the Bengali language, not in English, because most of our students... Uh, had limited English vocabulary, and I, a funny story. I remember, so I'm I'm teaching, and you know, the easier the the course level because our it was a three year diploma in theology, and um, the first year really were sixth seventh grade level in terms of reading. You know, so I, I would always avoid those higher level courses because there were big words that I didn't know in Bengali, participatory fellowship, you know, how do you break that down? <laughs> and But I loved teaching in Bengali because I was connected to the students and I wasn't relying on a translator. And I was in class and, and I was I was bombing. So I had the big book, I had the, you know, level three, it was uh, about leadership and and, I, and it was that word, participatory fellowship. And I said, I'm, I'm just messing up here. I, I should get a translator. So I said, to, and the students are like, no, no, we love you. You, you work it out. And, and I'm like, I, I don't think I'm going to help you. And, and there was one student who was like, we say in Bangladesh, he, he would speak direct. Like everybody else will, you know, say, oh, no, you're the professor. We love you. And, and so I told him, I said, you're in charge. You have a conversation and let the students decide whether I should use a translator or I keep plugging along and struggling in Bengali. And, you know, my thing is I want the students to do their best. And, mm -hmm. and if a translator is better, I shouldn't be messing up in, in Bengali language. So after a few minutes, he comes in. He's a little shy. He's like, brother, can I tell you the answer? I said, yes, that's your assignment. He goes, brother, you won't be mad at me? <laughs> I'm like, no, I won't be mad at you. He goes, brother, please don't mind. And I'm thinking, okay, they're going to tell me I, my Bangla stinks and, and I need a translator. And I said, no, tell me direct. And he said, you're kind of dumb like us. <laughs> you don't know those big words, and we don't know them. If you send in a translator, they're going to just force us to memorize, and we won't learn. But if you keep being like us, and you get less dumb every day, you're going to learn, and we're going to learn. <laughs> and so that was the pivotal moment. Wow. That was about two or three years into teaching. And because of that one statement, because... It made sense. I, I really didn't know, and they really didn't know, and we were learning together. And you, you learn tricks, like if it's a real tough paragraph that you were going to read, you ask a student to read it, and then mm -hmm. you're learning, and, and then you take the word, you have no idea what it means, and you ask the students. And, you know, so we kind of did that, and, but teaching in Bengali was just uh, amazing because in the language, there's the culture and there's the deeper understanding which causes everyone to learn. So, mm. so I accepted the fact that I was as dumb as everybody else. <laughs> and we all learned together. I, I like that. Yeah. That's really cool. So how did you get there? I mean, so did you do any uh, 
theology study before you went to the mission field, and did you sure. do any language study? So, um, great question. So, as soon as I got out of the Air Force, my wife went to nursing school, and I got my undergrad from uh, Gordon College, uh, Bible and Theology. And uh, as far as language school, that's, that's kind of funny that you ask that, because before she went to nursing school and I went to Gordon, uh, my wife's last Air Force assignment, I was now out and she was still in for another year, was in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And it's one of, I think at that time, I don't know now, three places that Wycliffe Bible translators would do their, what they call SIL, Summer mm-hmm. Institute of Linguistics. Mm-hmm. And it just happened that Grand Forks was one of those. And I found out about it. I knew I was going to missions. I knew I'd be going to Bangladesh. And um, I thought, well, I'm here. Let me just openly tell him. So I wrote a letter, Dear Wycliffe, I am not going to be a Bible translator. I'm in Grand Forks, North Dakota for another eight months waiting for my wife to finish assignment. I know I'm going to the mission field. Would there be value in me studying linguistics? They had a summer intensive. I mean, you would get like 12 semester hours for eight weeks work, but you were there from seven in the morning till 10 at night. I mean, you lived on the norm and, and they wrote back and said, well, you wouldn't be the top priority. So you would be a fill in. We'll let you know at the last minute. I said, well, that's fair enough. And so I ended up in summer Institute of linguistics, short little story about summer SIL, what they do. It's very intensive. And these are literal, I call them barefoot, Bible translators who come in for the summer. So on day one, they said, we have all these languages. So the idea is at the end of six weeks, there's a three-day project where you take everything you learn in six weeks and you are assigned a native speaker. And as a group, you have to figure out this person's language and you have to you know, be able to speak it. I mean, how in the world do you do that? Well, that's what Wycliffe does. And so they said, now, if you have a heart or an interest or a passion for a country or language, let us know. But at the same time, you have to disclose if you already know a language so that you don't cheat the system. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at the list and Bengali, the language of Bangladesh, which we already knew we were going to, was one of those languages. And, And it was a Gideon fleece for me. I thought, okay, God, I have this sense that you've called me to Bangladesh. And Bangla is one of the language options, and it's a Bangladesh student. I'm going to tell him I don't have a preference. And it would be really cool for a Gideon fleece confirmation (laughs) if I got assigned Bangla. So uh, the assignments come. They're on the board. And, you know, Bob McGurdy, Shamsud Zoha from Bangladesh. (laughs) And that was the first Bangladeshi I met. And, yeah, and so that... That six weeks was not much, but it was very intensive, and it did give me a jump to uh, have an appreciation for language and linguistics. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so I guess when you got there, then you just went immersive. So first year, we were pretty much full time language students, eight in the morning till noon. That's what we spent our day doing, and uh, they were intensives. By the end of three months, you could read, write, and speak 
albeit poorly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was a three-month intensive, and then you would take one-month classes. If you were interested in medical, you took a medical module. If you were interested in farming, you took an agriculture. Uh, so in that way, and, and after about eight or nine months, there weren't really any classes, but you could make classes. So I Knowing I wanted to teach in Bengali, I took those early uh, Bible uh, classes, and some of them were almost like evangelism literature more than teaching, great questions of life, we hear from the prophets, the Holy Spirit, your helpful friend. So I took these books, and we would have them in English and Bengali, and I hired a translator, and we just practiced that way. <laughs> yeah. Neat. So did you go to Bangladesh under a mission organization? So, or with the Assemblies of God Church, okay, and, that's, and that's who we worked with for 30 years. Okay. Yeah. And the organization I'm with now is not Assemblies of God. It's, it's more of a pair organization, but it's a kindred. It's, it, we're cousins, at mm -hmm. least I could put it that mm -hmm. way. Yeah. I don't know how to describe that. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. And that the, the organization you're currently with, Calcutta Mercy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, 15 years then in Bangladesh, and was all of that time spent in teaching institutionally, or did you have other things you got involved with? That was the most significant part, but we also did a lot of relief and compassion ministry work in uh, April 29th, 1991, was one of the worst uh, cyclones of the century. We had just Bangladesh, 150,000 people died. And there was an island called the island of Katubdia where 40,000 out of 120,000, one-third were dead. Wow. And just through a miraculous set of events with the U.S. military helicopter support, we actually went to Katubdia, spent several weeks there both helping medically but also sharing faith. And so it was just it was just a natural process. We had a team, and uh, my wife is a nurse. I'm a lab tech by background, so my, my medical's limited. Hers was more, but we had several doctors that came from the U.S. as a missions experience. And uh, so every day we got to just naturally pray for a patient and then just offer, no force, no pressure, but can we pray for you? Can we share with you? And, and it just naturally seemed and and in those times you know when you don't have medical assistant and you're just feeling desperate the the desperation of Katubdia was just amazing so we ended up doing relief work compassion community development and we enjoyed that but for me like the teaching part of it there are now there are leaders who are like running the denomination, who are in high positions of authority and all, who, if I go and visit, they have notes from my class, or they have <laughs> quotes, or let's call them Bobisms, like <laughs> things that I would say, and they quote it, and, you know, and I always had a policy, and uh, you, you were in our session today where weakest ink is stronger than strongest memory, and and I would always give my students a journal, even if it was a journal that cost a quarter in the market, and, and I would grade their notes because I knew that, you know, if you write it down, it's going to get into you more, and you have it for the future. Mm. You know, if on the fly you have to preach or teach or share, you, you, you've got something to pull from. And so I actually, that was a part of, I would grade the notebook. 
but then they're showing me these notebooks 20 years later, tattered, but they still have them and they're still preaching from them. So, wow. and that's humbling. I mean, oh, yeah. the value of that is amazing. That's so cool. So, how did that 15 year ministry end? You said you came back to the States. So, okay. what was that transition? So, we hit a season where we, we knew there was a next. <laughs> we didn't know what the next was, mm -hmm. but we, we knew that our season was near the end. And it was actually frustrating because on the one hand, we had been in Bangladesh so long and we're so much in affinity with culture and language and life and pace that the easiest thing was to stay. And uh, because you, you have all these connections and relations and many things happened that we were just close at many levels. But we knew there something was going to happen next, and, and through a unique set of circumstances, we, we knew what we were to do next, and that was a five-year assignment doing medical missions based in the States, going across the world. But an interesting story that happened there was uh, my, my family and I are tsunami survivors. We left Bangladesh, we're home on furlough, and the idea was a year later we're going to come home. Meanwhile, we have a new assignment, and so now, but we have to go back to Bangladesh to say goodbye. So in uh, December of 2004, we have a high school student, a college student, my wife who's got a nursing job in the States, and me, an itinerant missionary, and putting those four schedules together to go back to Bangladesh. So it was Christmas time. It was just before Christmas. And, and the tradition in Bangladesh is you go to your village for Christmas. So if you're going to visit everybody in the capital city, you've got to do it before the 22nd or so of December because everybody goes home, and it's a month. I mean, that's Christmas break, winter break, and it's a big celebration for the Christian community. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we, we got to Bangladesh about the 21st or so, just before everybody was leaving. They had a big celebration for us. It was wonderful. The four of us are all together. And then we took a little private vacation in Thailand. My, my boys, growing up as missionary kids, the, the saying was always that um, the closest McDonald's was in Bangkok, Thailand. So, so Thailand was a regular place. It was a two-hour flight, and part of our missionary package is once a year we would get flown there and we'd take our vacation. So, so that's the place we knew. So we planned this trip of we're going to go to Bangladesh, we're going to say goodbye to everyone, but we're going to get one more Bangkok McDonald's. You know, we're going to go to Thailand and, uh, and, and have this vacation, and Phuket was a favorite place we would go. And so literally it's Christmas Eve night. We, we get into Phuket check into our hotel and the next morning and this is a typical this is like real personal stuff about us but it's fun a typical McGurdy vacation is the boys will go on motorcycles and we'll go around and mom just sits by the beach with a book you know and so we we joke that you know we we go on motorcycles and about every two hours we come back and check on mom so mm. so it's kind of that kind of a vacation and it and it's literally Christmas day I end up in a motorcycle accident, long story short. Um, what had happened was my youngest son, this is the first time he's old enough to actually have his own, mm -hmm. and when we say motorcycle, it's more like mopeds, 125cc, um, automatic, no, no gear shift, so it's pretty easy. But So I'm giving my passport, filling out the liability forms, insurance and all. Meanwhile, they're teaching my youngest son how to use his bike. It's differently configured. 
but I don't know it. I'm not getting the instruction. I didn't need to. It was his bike. It was the easiest bike, but the brakes were in a different place. That, that's the main point. Mm. So he's getting ready to get on the bike, and then, you know, the natural thing is a dad, okay, we're in this city, we're in Thailand, safety, you know. I need to make sure I know the bike, and then I need to make sure he knows it not realizing he'd already gotten the instructions while I was filling out the paperwork. Anyways, I end up in a not uh, in an accident. I mean, I was going maybe 30 or 40 miles an hour, tap the brakes. Well, you just naturally think the your, the brake is where your right foot is. That's that's the back brake. Well, I did that, nothing. So then you go into bicycle mode and you think that the front right is your back brake, was the front brake, flipped. Oh. And uh, anyhow, because of that motorcycle accident, it actually saved our lives because my wife, who's a nurse, is looking at me and she realizes we need to get him looked after. And I had broken several of my ribs and was sore and all that kind of stuff. So she takes me to the hospital and uh, calls... Our, our boys who are teenagers at this point and said, hey, mom and dad are going to spend the night at the hospital, you know, just charge dinner to the room and we'll see you tomorrow kind of thing. So I spend the night. Well, the next day is when the tsunami happened on December 26, 2004. So that morning I'm in on my hospital bed and I can feel, because the bed's raised up, and so probably I could feel this earthquake where others around me couldn't because of the bed and the elevation. And I'm like, what is shaking? And my wife didn't feel it, didn't see it, didn't understand. Well, that was the first part of the earthquake. Anyhow, um, she goes, she said, well, I'm going to go check on the boys, and the doctor was going to let me out. And because of the way I fell, they wanted me overnight, and I had an IV on and all this. So meanwhile, she gets to the place where our kids are almost an hour away because she chose the better hospital, not the one that was right by the water. Well, she's checking on our boys, and it's, it's hard to describe. And, uh, of course, I'd like to use my hands, but that doesn't work on a podcast. So, right. uh, but, but the ocean is, think of the ocean as flat, a typical beach where it comes up a little bit, beach levels off. Then there's the road, but then there's a dip. And so our bungalow was actually to some level underneath the water line, but it was on the other side of the road. We, we, you don't think of these kind of things. But because of the tsunami, what had happened, so the boys, my wife's checking on the boys, and while they were all, like, packing to leave, the tsunami comes. What happened in the, in the little bungalow they were in, first the toilet explodes, the sink bursts, water's coming in, and they can hear this hiss. Like if you think of a British tea kettle that makes that loud sound, but it's amplified of an entire ocean, slaps the bungalow, water is filled up, and they're literally on the beds, and now like their bodies are near to the ceiling. My oldest son is trying to bash the door open, the windows won't because they're barred. It's just how it is in Asia. And finally, when the water recited, they were able to get out. And now they're walking over cars and buildings in water and uh, just had a horrific experience. I'm sitting in my bed in the hospital 
watching CNN and seeing this pulsating dot on Sumatra, and I'm hearing helicopters land on the hospital that I'm in, and I'm thinking, oh, these Thai people are so nice. They're helping all these Sumatrans, not knowing that my family is in the midst of this crisis. Anyhow, little by little, it's getting louder. It's getting noisier. It's, and I asked the nurse, what's going on? I knew it was more than what I was seeing on CNN. And there's a saying in Thai, my pin lai, which means never mind. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's nothing in Jersey, you know. My pin lai, my pin lai. But, and I'm like, something's happening. So I unplug the battery-operated IV, and I go to the day room where the hospital is, and I look out, and I can literally see all these dead bodies, and most of them had sheets, and they were triaging which ones could be brought in and taken care of, and they were prioritizing. And the nurse sees me, and, and the area that my family had been staying in, all of us, was called Golden Sand. And she said, uh, you know, in, in broken English as a Thai person, Golden Sand finished. Uh, everybody die. Your family die. Sorry, you go to bed. Literally. So I'm, I'm and I tell this story to my friends, and they're like, so you thought your family died? I said, no, I knew it. I mean, I had data. I was, I, you know, I had no reason to doubt her with, you know, looking at dead bodies and seeing CNN. So I literally go to my room and, and I'm, in the meanwhile, I'm just praying this prayer, like I did not verbally, but just in my mind, I'm just saying, you know, God, give me the grace to accept what your will has done. Mm. And so that's about 11 in the morning. And at five o'clock, my youngest son walks in the room. Well, he got in first because he had tennis shoes. The other two had flip-flops and they came out because of the water. So he's like, I got to go see dad. So he comes in and like, I go into Air Force military mode. I'm like, how many are you? <laughs> you know, because I, I have already been told and it's been confirmed as, as it can be that my family's all dead. And now one walks in and I, I want to know, are you the only one? And he does not understand. He has no idea what I'm going through. And I asked it again, and then he realized, and then we came. And there's much to that story, but anyways, the grace of God kept us. We're tsunami survivors, and we learned a lot in that process. Wow. Okay, so you had your time here in the States. You then got involved in Calcutta Mercy? Mm -hmm. So the process, real quick, so from Bangladesh, we worked in medical ministries for five years. I was asked to serve in India, which I did for eight years, and that was coming near to an end. And um, we we knew that you know we had taken we had taken the leadership role as far as we could, and actually it became a selfish thing for me. I mean, I could have stayed area director as long as I wanted for India and the role, and it was a prestigious role and all. But I knew that I couldn't go any further, and it needed to go further. So I mm. just kind of checked myself out of that leadership role. In fact, I resigned at my missionary appointment and it was rejected, <laughs> which is a nice thing. I mean, if you resign and you're rejected, somebody likes you. Right. And they said, well, stick around. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll give you some roles that you can uh, do. And it was at that time that my 32-year-old son passed away. He was actually staying with us. Long story short, it took weeks for the coroner to find out, but he had a fentanyl overdose he had, he had taken a drug or something and 
you know, we don't know the whole story of what had happened. And, you know, he had, he had faced some issues with drugs previously. We thought he was doing well. He was home with us. And, uh, of course, our world changed. But, but God in his wisdom knew because had I had that role, there would have been more devastation for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there would have been more compromise for ministry. But we were out of that. And, and uh, that was in 2017. So... Wow. I can't even imagine, you know, what that's like uh, when when you mentioned the age of your son. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking of my own son who my, my eldest son was born in 94. Okay. Um, and so I'm just thinking, you know, what how, how would that change my world? Well, and it does. There, there's a Middle Eastern proverb that a, a missionary friend of mine told me and I I thought how true that is and my wife's own journey, and, and it says, a mother is as happy as her saddest son. Mm. And you think about that, and, you know, you have kids, I mean, a mother is as happy as her saddest son. And, and, and it's been a journey for me, no doubt, but for my wife, I think it's even tougher. And it, it hurts less, but it still hurts. Oh, yeah. Five yeah, years absolutely. later. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So out of that, then... Mm-hmm. Can you tell me how the Lord has brought you comfort or, or confirmed his presence uh, despite the tragedy? You know, how has the Lord sure, used this? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, lots of friends surrounded us, uh, still painful. I would start by saying God knew what was going to happen before it happened, and that was a part, no doubt, that was a big part of why I stepped out of the role. My organization didn't want me to step out of the role, um, refused my resignation, and, you know, we, we had to say, no, it's, it's time, and we know. The beauty of that was that pressure. I mean, it, it, it's the most difficult job I've ever done and most rewarding, but I mean, you're, you're hit from every direction, from stateside, from India, organizationally, when, when people affiliated with our organization or denomination take their own private trips to India and something goes wrong and they're in jail or whatever, that's my responsibility, that's on my plate. So the, the level of responsibility, you know, I was expected to speak like everywhere. There were 44 Bible schools in India that I had some authority over. What You can have no authority when you have that much. It was a high-pressure job, and God knew and released me of that so that that was a way for me. So, so in that way, there was God's presence in that. My son's friends that were close to him ended up taking a faith walk with us for months afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, coming to church for the first time, experiencing God. And, and that was one of the beauties is we didn't have access to his friends like we did afterwards because they were hurting and um, some of them lived with us for a little while and did life with us. And so, mm-hmm. so the comfort was in that kind of a community. A side story with this, so um, because we had, we had come home on furlough, we transitioned, so now we're in the States, and uh, we had developed friendship with the Bangladesh community in Springfield, Missouri. And literally, um, when I found out my son died, I was in New Jersey doing some coaching with a friend of mine. And my wife called me, and I show up at night, and I get to the airport in Springfield, Missouri. And my wife's sitting in the chair, 
we had two elder friends that were right there and she was surrounded by five Bangladeshis. Um, one of the boys who's like a son to us, he, he called and he said, um, we've called Twyla because he knew right away and we let him know. And he said, we've, we've called Twyla or auntie and, uh, and she's saying, don't come. She's okay. Can I have your permission to disobey her and come? <laughs> and I'm like, please, this is what time she'll be at the airport. And literally, she was surrounded. And so, so that was one of those comforts that um, they walked that sorrow with us. But, but also, from a faith perspective, they got to watch how we dealt with sorrow and how we dealt with healing and how we dealt with overcoming adversity, not because we're reading from the Bible or we're giving a leadership book, but they're walking it with us and crying with us. And so for those five, that the first time they were in church was in a funeral and hearing the message. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, that, those were some of the ways and, uh, that, that God's presence was with us. Mm -hmm. And I would say from Johnson University, I was, my, I was taking a class with Dr. Mark Weedman when this happened. And, uh, the grace that he uh, displayed, you know, we, we, we talk about faith and work and prayer, but that grace piece, so, you know, there's a rigor, there's a scholarship that's expected as a Johnson University student, but Dr. Weedman just demonstrated, and, and I remember, you know, my thing is I've got this paper, and, and we're like two to three weeks from the end of the class, and that's the worst time because if you're at the end you're done if you're in the beginning it didn't matter you didn't start anyway so and and I'm like I'm gonna finish this paper I'm gonna finish this paper and he's like just take time and, and I'm like I, I'm gonna finish this paper and finally he said just send me the paper as you currently have it and I sent it to him and uh, he said you know this is this paper is at this level and he goes, um, your, your final grade with this paper as it is, is a B plus. Take the B plus. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I want an A, you know. <laughs> and I give, so about a week later, I said, um, I'll take my final grade. But, but he just showed grace. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so there's an expectation. There's an academic rigor. This is my experience with Johnson, but there's also grace. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was huge. Yeah. Wow. Well, you've uh, you've touched the subject. I mean, we could talk so much more about your ministry experience and everything you're you've gone through and are currently doing with Calcutta Mercy. But you and I just met this week because we were together with the PhD summit at Johnson University that brought together faculty and current students and uh, future students for the PhD program. So I'm going in, and you just completed in 2022. So tell me about that PhD program as far as how you experienced it, what your research topic was, what you learned. So let me talk about the highlight for me, my denomination, the work that I do. We're a very reactive community. We hear something, we go do it. And I've learned at Johnson through the PhD program, I can't speak for the other programs, but I can speak for what I know. It's very much about intentional reflection. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Alicia Crumpton founded the program and Dr. Beard now leading it. There's just, let, let's think about this and let's think deeply. And that was a lack in my life in terms of a spiritual discipline. There, 
this this week the the speakers that we had dr rafael rodriguez just teaching us in a powerful way special speaker last night we're, we're just rich with intentionality of the spiritual component of it and we were talking last night and so here we are phd students up till midnight talking theology and scholarship <laughs> and all and what sets the johnson phd program apart is there's many PhD programs that people can choose from, but you you look at vocation versus call. So why why a PhD? Well, it advances my career. Uh, Johnson, why PhD? Because there's a call to this idea, whether it's higher education, whether it's in a vocation in ministry, and and that's the set apart piece, and that's where the grace comes in because we all have life and things going on. And, and so I, I made a choice of Johnson. I got in there reasonably early in this program. But um, so I started with an interest in uh, millennials and communication and, you know, some of the why wondering about this whole online space. So, so where I started was I believe in millennials. I, I believe in them as a generation. I want to see them go further and accomplish more than any generation. But all of a sudden, the millennial generation is native onlineers. Mm-hmm. I'm not native to that. It, it, it takes a few steps. And, and if I'm responsible as, as a leader, as a Christian leader, to lead a generation in a space that I don't live in, know, or know anything about, I need to learn about it. And so communication, nonverbal communication, millennials, all were bits and pieces that, that took me on a journey. My initial research, which is our candidacy paper, was on the millennial choice to text instead of talk. Why do millennials prefer to text instead of talk? Well, as I dug in, they don't necessarily prefer it, and some of it's technology, but that's another story. But but that got me deeper into communication side, and where I landed, and, and my dissertation literally was signed by Dean uh, Dr. Brim, yesterday afternoon so i'm <laughs> i'm fresh in this uh, i found out today that i'm number 52 of the graduates which means that we now have a full deck and i i'm not the joker 53 gets to be the joker but i so we've got a full full deck and and so it's, it's very fresh but my research is the whole idea of social presence online so student perception of social presence in an online uh, asynchronous doctoral program. So what does that all mean? What's social presence? So if you're taking a class, what makes you feel or sense that this is real, that it's not artificial intelligence, that there's meaningful dialogue and interaction? So there's a discussion forum. It's asynchronous. We're not online at the same time. And you post something, and and the professor says expound. Well, you're not feeling social presence. But if he says, Tyson, do you remember the discussion forum last week when you were talking about how it relates to your role at Johnson? Please expound on that. Well, all of a sudden, social presence is up because that teacher knows you mm-hmm. by name and knows your story and your backstory. So the things that we do that make it personal, that's social presence. And so social presence has been studied since the 1990s in elementary, in high school, in undergrad, in graduate. 
but to the best of my knowledge, until this research has been completed, it's never been studied in the doctoral level. So I did my research in that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I understand that you just like got the official, the, the paper was submitted to the online digital space where this will be available for people to read who have access to, is it RefWorks? What's the name of that? Uh, ProQuest, the, they're in, in ProQuest, there's a section of dissertations. And uh, so, yeah, so with Dr. Brim, the dean of uh, the school's signature yesterday afternoon, this morning, in the process, it went through, and, and so I just received a confirmation literally the hour before you and I sat down to do this podcast together that it's been approved, and so within the next few days, it, it will be available in that space. That's so cool. Well, look forward to, you know, to reading about that. I think that might give some great insight to, you know, prospective students on the program to understand. Absolutely. Um, at just a recruitment piece, if, if someone's interested in the PhD program, the creativity is amazing. So, you know, the, the challenge is you do something you're interested in. So when you've got to read a gazillion articles and books, it's got to be something you want to read one more, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So mm-hmm. um, and, and blending the this is my passion and interest and it can be my scholarship. And they walk you through that process, but that's, so, so don't just come of, if I do this, my career advances. You pick a topic that no matter what I do in life, is a core of how God made me and how I'm wired, what I love. I could do it even if I didn't have this job. You find that topic and the program works with you. Mm. So yeah. I found, you know, I, I, decided to go with this program for a couple reasons. Now, I was actually, you know, the first recruiter for the program. I recruited Dr. Beard, who is now the director of the program. Well done. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I love it. Uh, But, of course, my career here at Johnson University took some turns to be church relations, alumni relations now. And uh, I I wanted to take this program from the beginning, but just financially couldn't do it. And, And doors have opened up that I have this opportunity now. But I started, uh, I started the application process because I had a thought in my mind of what I wanted to pursue and study. And, you know, through this summit, as we've talked and I've been thinking and taking notes and whatever, I, I'm almost ready to shift what I had been wanting to do all along because I hear some of the dialogue going on and it forced me to reconsider the question I was asking from the beginning, it's like, I haven't even started the program yet, and I'm already learning so much from what uh, the experience of other students who have been through it. Well, I know you're interviewing me, but I'm interested in what your topic is. So my our original thought process was uh, I, I wanted to figure out how people of diverse, you know, worldviews, whether that's uh, religious or cultural worldviews, people of distinct worldviews, how they work together effectively to accomplish mm-hmm. things. So uh, I'm thinking of like investigating the top 100 Christian workplaces, you know, those workplaces that are rated super high in employment satisfaction and mm-hmm. uh, morale and all of that and trying to determine, you know, these are people with diverse opinions on politics and religion and just all kinds of things. Yet they want to be there. Yet they, they want to work together. 
for a common goal, right? Mm -hmm. What makes that tick in some organizations and not in others? So that's where I started. Mm -hmm. And that's good. I'm I'm still I'm still interested in that and I'm still considering it. But as we were going through our discussion today, I was thinking, you know, well, what is something that I think would be closer to home that that I'm dealing with, like here mm-hmm. in the university setting? Right. Um, well, something somebody said in the PhD uh, summit today was like org charts and, mm-hmm. and kind of rethinking the org chart paradigm and saying, you know, let's, let's get everybody who's in the bottom of the org chart working together, mutually, mm-hmm. you right. know, pursuing a goal, but understanding one another's positions as well. And so now I'm thinking, you know, what is, is there something I can do that is pursuing the breakdown of silos? I haven't had a chance to think about it fully because as I said, that just kind of it's dawned new. on me yeah. today. Uh, but I think there's there's overlap in a way between what I'm thinking about what makes a, an organization work well despite various differences, and you know organizations that are stuck in silos mm-hmm. need to break down those barriers as well. So there you go. I have cool. not started class one, but that's where I'm. No, well, no, and uh, it's important because um, and it will come in time, and you'll have four or five more ideas, uh-huh. and that whiteboard will. <laughs> go through iterations and you'll, you'll figure it out yeah. yeah you know i'm excited there are things about the program that i've learned over this summit mm-hmm. that just terrify me to no end but mm-hmm. one of the things that was consistently presented was just take the next step exactly and, yeah. and you know the next step is one that you can see that you can manage that helps to grow you a little bit and uh, eventually when you get to that yeah, that proposal, the candidacy status, and so on. You'll be ready to yep. just taking that step. And and the cool thing about the design is is it is as much a personal journey as it is an academic journey. Mm. And that you know you you you'll be smarter, you'll be able to advance in your career, and you'll have that degree. But you will also have learned how to learn, mm. and that's that's the goal for it. So. Well, for me personally, uh, this journey is not about anything other than just wanting to be ready for whatever God has next. Amen. So, Amen. I don't know what that is. And if it is anything different than Johnson, I mean, I've been here for 20 years and I'll, I'll be content to be here for another 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whatever God has next, I want to be ready for it. That's cool. Good. Well, I, I really appreciate your, uh, your time and getting to know you. This has been this has been great. Uh, I, I wish I could just have you here and talk for another hour or two <laughs> about your journey and about the PhD program and such. But uh, we have come to time, and I'm going to have to let you get out. Before I do, though, I want to ask you one more question. Sure. I'm going to give you 60 seconds to think about it while I do a commercial. Okay. And, and then we'll have you answer. So imagine, if you will, that for the next 60 seconds everybody in the world is going to listen to the podcast. Mm -hmm. So everybody in the world is -hmm. your audience. Mm -hmm. What are you going to tell the world in 60 seconds? So while you think about your answer, let me remind our listeners that the Sojournal Podcast has been brought to you by the Alumni Association of Johnson University. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. 
Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. You can learn more about the Alumni Association at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. So, Dr. Bob McGurdy, a newly minted 2022 PhD graduate with more than 30 years of ministry internationally, currently working with Calcutta Mercy, what one-minute message would you give to the world? We are so uniquely designed by God, and one of the saddest things is that many of us go and spend so much of our life not knowing ultimately the why. Why am I on earth? Why was I born? For what reason? And, and I encourage you, whether it's academia, whether it's personal reflection, whether it's getting deeper into the Word of God, figure out your why and spend the rest of the time accomplishing the why. <laughs> Excellent. I don't know if you've ever read the book Start With Why by Simon Sinek, but <laughs> says, you just kind of hit on that. That's great. I love Simon Sinek, and I've listened to him on YouTube a lot. So yeah. were you in the dinner last night? I was not. I just was blown away by that lady who's commissioner in Knoxville College. And she went into the why. I mean, she, she walked up there and started with, you know, we're going to talk about the why. And Chris, at the end of that, just said, have you met Rafael Rodriguez? Did you talk with him? <laughs> this is the first year we didn't have a theme, but you guys had a theme. Uh-huh. And anyways. It's so, really yeah. neat how, how the Lord works those yeah. kinds of things. Well, Dr. McGurdy, this has been a privilege, pleasure to get to know you. Thank you so much for giving me your time and being my guest on the Sojourner Podcast. Thank you. It's been a privilege. The Sojournal Podcast is a production of the Alumni Relations Office at Johnson University. Edited by Sam Cunningham. Podcast graphics by Rachel Woolard. Music by Loyal Love. Tune in to other Sojournal Podcasts dropping each Monday on Anchor FM, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening.